This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hello and welcome to Savor. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And Savor? That's right. <laughs> I said Savor. Food stuff has changed a little bit, including the name. We're going to be doing a lot more traveling, and we thought that we would rebrand to reflect that. And what we're hoping to accomplish here, besides trying a lot of amazing food and drink, is to find out why we, as in all of us, why we enjoy the things that we enjoy, and we want to find how we can get to more of those things. But never fear, the puns and nerdery are not going away. Oh, I don't think that's physically possible, I doubt it, no. So we're still talking about food and drinks, but more through the lens of particular people and places. Not just what people eat, but why. How food connects different communities and how we all connect with our communities through food. Because some people devote their entire lives and their livelihoods to the food industry, but everybody eats. Well, at its very best, a good meal brings people together. Food is such a communal thing that any time that a family is eating together or friends are getting together to eat or you are seated at a table with strangers and you pick up a conversation around the food, that's when a meal is doing work and it's magic, is bringing human beings together. That is Stu Helm, a food writer who lives in Asheville, North Carolina, which was our first stop. We, and that is to say me and Lauren and super producer Dylan, decided on Asheville for several reasons. It definitely has its own unique food scene and a huge beer scene. 
also has a pinball museum, which isn't food-related strictly, (laughs) but it is a plus for a team that loves pinball. Annie and I both got high scores at that pinball museum. We did. I am terrible at pinball, but I somehow managed to get a high score on the Game of Thrones pinball machine. Mine was on a creature from the Black Lagoon. Nice. Oh, yeah. We spent four days and three nights in Asheville in the most Asheville of Airbnbs. There was a Zen rock garden. There was. And we got a lot out of it. We talked to farmers, chefs, brewers, distillers, critics, authors, tour leaders. We ate so much food and drank so much beer. Over the next few weeks, you're going to be hearing audio from all of this because we were lucky enough to get some amazing folks on microphone. A lot of people that we talked to about this trip had some preconceptions about Asheville, us included. We talked about it in the studio with producer Dylan when we got back. And I will say, Dylan... You kind of shaped a lot of mine. Because originally when I thought of Asheville, I thought hiking and the Hunger Games. That's where they filmed the first one. I've always wanted to go. It's good hiking up there. And also, yes, kind of hippies. Yeah, which in my defense, I haven't been there in 10 years probably. Okay. But obviously Asheville has changed a lot in the past 10 years, in the past 30 years. But as far as what we were there for, the food scene Uh, It's really exploded in the past decade. Yeah, I was prepared to be cynical and to hate it because I don't like patchouli or drum circles. Everyone was threatening me with drum circles as we were getting ready to take this trip. They were like, oh, man, Lauren, it's going to be funny when we take you to a drum circle and you hate it so much. We did not wind up going to a drum circle. Spoiler alert. Yeah, too much good food to be had. Not enough time. When you think of Asheville food, I'd wager that, like us, or like me anyway, you find an interesting dichotomy in your head. The first and second things that come to mind are probably North Carolina barbecue and crunchy hippie foods, and maybe probably beer on top of that. I doubt there is another city in the South with that same split. We would find that Asheville is a city of dichotomies like that. And these are all things that we're going to explore in depth. But briefly, it has this rich surviving art history because it was poor for so long. It has the most beer breweries per capita in the country because of the same factors that made it lead the country into prohibition. It's an area of rugged individualism and tight-knit community. It's both Southern and Appalachian, both old and new. And its highbrow art scenes celebrate the lowbrow, including food and drink. And it's a city with many nicknames. Beer City, Bee City, Foodtopia, Paris of the South, Sky City, Ash Vegas, <laughs> Malt Disney World. And at one time, the tuberculosis capital of the United States. This is another thing. Like, everyone in Asheville knows each other. And to be fair, there's only 90,000 people in the town. Yeah. But every single one of those 90,000 people seems like they know each other. That was probably the most shocking thing I learned the entire time there. I thought it was a much bigger place. Oh, yeah. yeah. The downtown area is less than a square mile. Once you're there, you can walk just about anywhere in under 20 minutes. And a few surrounding neighborhoods are just a couple extra minutes away by bike or car. Despite that, this is a major tourist town with millions of visitors a year. In 2016, the number was 10.7 million tourists. 
As someone who grew up in a tourist town, Dahlonega, I know it can be both frustrating, but also something that keeps your city, or in my case town, it's pretty small, running. I remember festival weekends like Gold Rush, where you would leave town to escape the tourist, or the huge difference between weekday traffic and weekend traffic. A bad tourist season is bad business in a town where tourism is such a huge part of the economy. And we complain about tourists, but we need them to. We'll talk more about that as we get deeper into our stories here. But first, let's step back a little bit and ask that question that we have always started with. Asheville. What is it? We'll start answering that with help from the most unlikely and unsettling of places. After we take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season... We are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. To help us better understand the food scene in Asheville, we first wanted to know, what was Asheville's origin story? How did it shape what Asheville is now? What is Asheville now? To answer these questions, we did what any professionals will do and made one of our first stops a comedy ghost bus tour. Comedy ghost bus tour. Let that sink in. Our tour guide was one Dr. Bones Boudreaux. Okay, so we went on a haunted comedy bus tour through Lazoom, right? Yes. Yeah, that's uh-huh. the company, which I was prepared to like Daria my way through that entire ride. And yeah. I was genuinely delighted, and not only because I had a crush on the tour guide. They got us hooked for my first minute. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Thomas Wolfman! It was funny. It was funny. It really was. And it was surprisingly instructive for a comedy ghost bus tour. But I think we need to back the bus up. Oh. And describe the bus. It was a school bus? Uh-huh. Converted school bus. A converted school bus. It was purple. So purple. It was purple. It was fully packed. And the performer stood at the front of the bus he had a bar, right, that he implemented into his act, right? A number of bars, a yeah. There were a couple on the ceiling, and there was one on the side that he could kind of acrobat around on just a little. Yeah. The bus didn't have windows, correct? Zero panes in the windows. Yeah. Oh, okay. Annie is refreshing my memory, and I have forgotten the most important part. It has lips <laughs> on the front. <laughs> Uh, that uh, kind of like wax lips, or maybe if you're thinking about the Rolling Stones logo. Oh, yeah. And it has buck teeth inside of those lips. <laughs> um, a little gold molding around the windows. Yeah, yeah. And gold hubcaps. Uh-huh. Purple and gold, a very, for Asheville, a very Los Angeles Lakers-based bus here. <laughs> um, but no, it was delightful, except that they were children-sized benches. <laughs> we actually highly recommend this for anyone who A, likes puns B, wants to just get a base level handle on Asheville's history but they did not want us to record it so you'll have to go if you want their version you can think of later but we also spoke to someone that was less comedy ghost history focused and also one of the three people we met who actually grew up in Asheville. Because although it's a great tourist and family town now, and it was a great tourist town back in the early 1900s following the Biltmore's completion, there were about 70 years in between where it just wasn't. When I grew up in Asheville, this was not the place to be. It was a really rough town because of a weak financial position it had been in since the Great Depression. Most of the buildings were boarded up. You know, the highlights were pawn shops and porn stores and porn theaters. I've got a great photograph from 1985, as late as 85, of the Fine Arts Theater, which is one of our independent film theaters. And the two features that day were Sassy Sue and Three on a Waterbed. It was a place your mom told you that you hadn't lost anything and you didn't need to go back to find. That's Kevin Frazier. He's a history professor at Western Carolina University and runs Asheville by Foot, a walking history tour company. We met him at a board game restaurant and bar called Well Played, which he also runs. 
Kevin calls Asheville an underdog, one that overcame the odds. Asheville started out as a small trading outpost, a place you'd stop on your way to somewhere else. It was quite small and quite remote for a long time. In Kevin's words, Sherman was never going to march through Asheville. One of the jokes on that comedy bus tour was about the Battle of Asheville. It was a parody of Bon Jovi's You Give Love a Bad Name, You Give War a Bad Name. Because, okay, during this battle, absolutely no one died. And eventually everyone just went home. Asheville was really insulated. This was not the last song pun we would hear on this trip. More on that in future episodes. But two things would change this insulation. A uh, railroad route, important. And physicians who painted Asheville as this sort of health resort town, what with all that fresh mountain air that was believed to be good for your tuberculosis, and that moderate climate in the hot springs that were in the area. People from the industrialized north would take trains to Asheville. And this was before paid vacation, so it was mostly rich people, and they'd stay a couple of weeks or months at a time. This was the beginnings of Asheville as a town for tourism. And it's also how something like the Biltmore Estate happens in what, at first glance, kind of makes you wonder how in the world it ended up there. Or in Kevin's words. I always thought growing up as a kid that it was really strange. How did these folks ever find Asheville? Well, the truth is, the, the folks of the Vanderbilt social class had been coming to Asheville. One of Asheville's biggest modern tourist attractions is the Biltmore Estate. Big in size and traffic. If you are unaware of what this is, essentially it's a huge mansion in the style of a French chateau nestled in a forest on a mountain in the Appalachians. (laughs) It was constructed in the late 1800s under the orders of George Washington Vanderbilt II and was, and still is, America's biggest privately owned home. It now sees almost 1.5 million tourists each year. I wasn't expecting the gym and the pool. The underground pool was the big key, like I'm not in Kansas anymore moment. They have a swimming pool that is underground. It is in the basement, and it's not small. Imagine it being 1889 and going, you know, hey, check out this 2,000-foot mountain or 600-meter mountain if we're using the metric system. Let's drag everything we need to build a 179,000-square-foot mansion up there. I can't imagine that. Me neither, because that's almost 17,000 square meters of floor space. That's a lot. It's like two and a half large supermarkets or something a little bit larger than your average Sears, but for a single family to live in. You have to have a little bit more than a hunch to embark on a project like that. The building of the Biltmore Estate does a couple of things to push Asheville further along the path to becoming the Asheville that it is today. First off, the Vanderbilts were celebrities of their time. Even if you lived in the middle of nowhere, your local paper probably printed stories about the Vanderbilts. So the fact that they have this enormous mansion in Asheville only increased tourism. People could say they were going to check out that place where the Vanderbilts live. Another thing it did was create a community of folks that came to work on the Biltmore and then stayed. There were a group of artisans, architects, and craftsmen that came to work at Biltmore, who were here for so long that they stayed. They basically built new lives here. And that's why Asheville's got such a great architectural collection that's uh, much more substantial than most cities this size have. In the first few decades of the 20th century, Asheville experienced enormous growth. 
Asheville hired a city planner and implemented a program for progress to keep them on track to becoming a major southern and even east coast city. A lot of gorgeous Art Deco-style buildings went up because of that, and the city racked up a lot of debt. When the stock market crashed in 1929, Asheville had a debt of more than $54 million. In today's money, that's $780 million for a city that had a population of 50,000. The city, unlike most that were faced with similar situations, refused to declare bankruptcy. They refused to default on their bonds. For almost 50 years, Asheville paid off their debts. Like a Lannister, Asheville always pays off their debts. It was the only city in American history to actually do so. They had a bond burning to celebrate, which I'm sure was fun, but the city was still financially crippled. You know, no money for investment, but also no money to tear things down. During this period, even the Biltmore estate struggled. It was losing a quarter of a million dollars a year by 1960. Ooh, the name Asheville is almost comically on point. But what really pulled Asheville, well, out of the ashes, is tourism. And specifically, it's growing beer and restaurant scene. And we will get into that, finally talking about actual food, as soon as we get back from one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So coming out of Asheville's long depression, the food and drink scene was non-existent, especially the drink part. Uh, Kevin remembered it. I mean, we didn't have what was called liquor by the drink in Asheville until I think like 78, 79. We didn't even have national chain restaurants. None of those would come because they had, you know, they had bars. That's where the profit margins at. I mean, I remember when Red Lobster opened up and people act like it was the second coming of Christ. <laughs> and they're like, oh my gosh, Red Lobster here in Asheville. To this day, it's hard to find a corporate chain in the city. By the time more were interested in opening up shop, the citizens were not interested. A subway closed. We went on a brunch tour, and I told the guy who was running the brunch tours to, uh, I said, people who said it, the thing about the subway closing, I can't believe a subway closed. And he was like, yes. And then he did say quietly, but there's a five guys. They had a mellow mushroom that was so nice that Dylan was like, what building is this? It has lovely art. <laughs> it was a and I looked at the front of it. I was like, oh, yeah, that's Mellow Mushroom. <laughs> But yes, slowly, possibilities for restaurateurs and other entrepreneurs started to open up. It's not like the area had nothing to offer. We also spoke with Alan Musket, a professional forager in the Asheville area. It turns out you're standing in the most biodiverse temperate region in the Western Hemisphere. And the second most in the world. So outside of the tropics, we have more mushroom species there's probably uh, three, five, three or 5,000 or something. We're the most salamanders of anywhere in the world, including the tropics. Um, the plant diversity and within it of edibles is huge. And he's just talking about what grows here naturally, which for the record, he thinks that we all should be eating more of or even eating exclusively. That's a whole other episode. Yes. But supporting that and also supporting agriculture is the French Broad River, which is the oldest river in the world, and it flows north starting from a point just south of Asheville, which means the area has access to this excellent fresh water, great for making beer and for farming. One thing we're kind of lucky about here in Asheville is the agriculture is so amazing. It's very comparable to the Bay Area, San Francisco, where I kind of came up as a cook. That's Graham House, chef at downtown restaurant and cocktail bar, Sovereign Remedies. And he would know. He's from Asheville, too, though he's lived and worked elsewhere. And it took him a while to find his way back. I grew up in the forest, so it's, I didn't really appreciate it as much because I was a kid and I just wanted to go party and not be on a mountain in the middle of nowhere. But now <laughs> it's, you know, I kind of took it for granted. But now I really appreciate, like, my own land that I grew up on has chanterelle mushrooms and 
you know, black trumpet mushrooms and ramps and all these things that people like really want. Asheville was coming out of its long depression right as a lot of these sorts of traditional, local, weird foods were becoming popular via the farm-to-table movement. Our whole food and drink scene, most of that emerged out of the 90s in Asheville, uh, though we actually go back even back to right at the late 70s and early 80s, particularly one uh, chef, uh, Mark Rosenstein. Mark opened a restaurant called The Marketplace, and um, uh, food historians really consider Mark in that group of the original uh, farm-to-table founders around the country. He was a very early pioneer in what came to be called farm-to-table. And now farm-to-table is so common in Asheville, we don't really call anything farm-to-table. That's just like calling it food. It's really not a catchphrase in Asheville. Stu had this to say about the phrase farm-to-table itself. It's actually fallen out of favor with a lot of the chefs, and that's because it's gotten overused. Um, You guys probably already know you can go into McDonald's, and there's a farm-to-table salad on the menu. Uh, Farm-to-table has a meaning, which means that there's no food broker in the middle. There's always, there's a farmer and a chef, and they have a relationship, and the farmer walks into the restaurant and sells goods to to the restaurateur. And in Asheville, restaurateurs work with specific small farmers, and they, uh, will base their menus sometimes, especially during the growing season, on what the farmer has brought to them that day. The chefs around here prefer to use the term um, responsibly sourced, and that is not as poetic a term. And so I still use the term farm to table because it does have a specific meaning. And so McDonald's with their farm to table salad, I highly doubt that there are, you know, 10,000 farmers walking into 10,000 McDonald's and selling them a head of lettuce every morning. And so that's a misuse of that word. But okay, caveat aside, This spirit of collaboration between people in the food industry, it's something we heard over and over again during our time in Asheville. Ann Fitton Glenn, a local beer historian and beer consultant, put it this way. There is this kind of frontier mentality of, you know, kind of making your own hooch and supporting local and buying from your neighbor. I mean, people never really got away from wanting to buy local here just because it, it was so isolated for so long, I think. It's also at the heart of the city as a whole. Just about everyone being artists and entrepreneurs themselves, they want to see each other succeed. Kevin told us. I mean, literally, like at Well Played, our board game cafe, there are times we run out of something and we can go next door to the Laughing Seed and, you know, it's barring a cup of sugar, so to speak. And we help each other out like that all the time. There's not a sense of cutthroat competition in the food scene here. I mean, everyone talked about it. Here's a quote from local food journalist Mackenzie Lunsford. The food community here is incredibly supportive. You see a lot of chefs collaborating. I mean, it sounds kind of cliche, but you do see chefs, you know, running back and forth, giving People, you know, if they, somebody runs out of cilantro, it's okay to run down to Chai Pani and grab a bunch. <laughs> and one from Graham House. One thing I love about Asheville is it's not competitive in the way that people are dogging other people. I feel like everybody tries to lift each other up. That being said, the bar food you find in Asheville is not like the bar food you're going to find anywhere else because that won't cut it. Like, it's a very tight community here. Small town with a lot of restaurants, so if you see a restaurant that's still open, it's probably going to be good because things don't last here if they're not good. On top of that, in North Carolina, if you're a bar selling spirits, 
you'll be classified as a private club, meaning you have to collect memberships at the door, which can be off-putting. The only way to get around that is to serve food. Food sales have to make up 30% of total sales at any given time. But, okay, speaking of booze, food is only half the story in Asheville because, as I said earlier, the city has the most breweries per capita in the whole country, and that is part of the tourist draw and a significant collaborative force in the community. Kevin told us. You know, we actually have a, uh, a beer editor. You know, how many cities have a beer editor, right? Tony <laughs> Kiss. And Tony was saying, maybe to me about a year ago, that you know, in any given week, it's about 350 different varieties of beer being brewed in Asheville. We also spoke with Leah Wong Ashburn, the president and CEO of Highland Brewing, which is the first and oldest craft beer operation in Asheville, started by Leah's father, Oscar, in 1994. I think that dad... He wouldn't admit this, but I think he saw that kind of like burgeoning spirit of the beverage and food. There's always been a craft community here. Like that's where Asheville's roots are. Um, and the artistic community is just amazing here. And I think that he saw some of the like quality of life things that bubble around that so easily in the great beer communities on the West Coast that hadn't quite made it to the Southeast. And it's, it's really true. I, you know, I've, I've traveled a bit out west to some great beer communities, and it feels similar to Asheville in a lot of ways. It's amazing how beer has kind of revitalized Asheville. Uh, yeah, it has. There's not a whole lot of industry here. So it's um, beer is something, it's celebratory. It gathers people. Um, it's a natural community energy creator, kind of. And so in small towns across the country now, you can gather around a brewery like people gather around a local sports team. Which people certainly do. Oh, yeah. It was a pretty amazing scene. Producer Dylan just pointed out in a lot of towns you have kind of like a bar row. But Asheville, it's not even a row. It's just the whole town is full of breweries. And so you can, within a few steps, be in one place and then another, try all of these different things. And everywhere that we went, we saw people just having a good time. Like they were out with their friends, with their families, with their dogs. So many dogs. So many dogs. It was a great dog city. I'm also not used to, coming from Atlanta, a lot of our breweries don't have as many options. Right. But the breweries in Asheville, I felt like just pages of different beers you could try. Oh, yeah. Which I'm very not used to that. And also, yeah, like I'm not used to seeing families with young children out at breweries. And that was a very common thing in Asheville. When we asked people the broad question of, why Asheville? We started to see a theme emerge. We also spoke with JL and Dan Radigan, the co-founders of the Do We Need a Bouncer level popular French Broad Chocolate Company. You know, when we boil that down to its essence, for Dan and I, we sometimes say it was food and babies. And what that meant to us was that we were looking for a place to start our business. We were looking for a place that supported entrepreneurs and uh, with communities that were supportive of small business and a place that we would want to raise our kids, a place where we could play outside, um, and a place where we could be a part of a community that wanted to engage with each other and create an awesome life. And that's what we saw here and that's what we've experienced here is people who are really engaged in making a difference and in contributing in a positive way to the world. And that's very energizing to be a part of that. You know, it makes 
it makes us want to continue to learn and grow and improve and and offer more ourselves. The people that are here aren't here because they, you know, they're they're out. For, they're out, they're here for quality of life, and um, and they're excited to see people thrive. And so that's the sentiment that it seems to be the common thread from the investment community to the school community, and on and onward from there. And Leah said, Asheville kind of makes you look at what's important in life. There's just a lot of people that choose to live here because they like the vibe. There's a lot of folks here that value being outside. You know, we're attracted to the mountains and that natural beauty, the natural resources that come from that. And that kind of flows into being so outside. So you're moving around outside, you're taking part in things together, you're protecting those cool things together. And then it flows into beverage and food. And so I feel like a healthier and better person living in this city, which is a pretty strong statement to make about what a city can do for an individual. And I never knew that that could be a thing before I got here. We ourselves definitely experienced what we came to call Asheville time. Interviews went on way longer than we'd planned, but no one minded. We stumbled late at night into this karaoke bar that was technically closed, but the bartender was still pouring, and the karaoke guy was like, I guess I'll keep spinning, and there was a dog on the bar that was basically running the place. These things don't happen in Atlanta, but it was really easy to get used to. Just for an example, when we got back and we did our postmortem, we were talking about the experience of our final dinner in Asheville at an Italian-ish place called Cucina 24. And we were saying how good everything was, but also... We stayed there for like two and a half hours. Yeah, Yeah, we had to drive (laughs) back to Atlanta. (laughs) We had no idea. I went to the bathroom before we were leaving, and this is how time works in Asheville. Yeah. You're just having a good time. Yeah. You're not looking at your clock, and I was like, God, it's like 9 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. And that is an observation I think we all made is that Asheville time, it does seem to move differently. It does, and no one cares. Like, Atlanta is a southern city and sort of the opposite end of the spectrum where, like, everyone is extremely punctual and offended if you are not. (laughs) (laughs) We've got places to be and things to do. Yeah. Right now, right now, right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that dinner, that was great because it was our last meal there. Mm -hmm. We just enjoyed each other's company and conversation and had good food. It was pretty relaxing. It's nice and to a nice trip. It was. And this is approaching the end of our first episode about Asheville. But we have so much more to come. Beer. Past and present. The importance of breakfast. What the heck Amaro is and why its recipes are secret as though its brewers are magicians. So keep an eye on your podcast feeds, friends. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. Oh, yeah. Our email address is hello at saverpod.com. Yeah, and we have a website now. What? (laughs) I know, saverpod.com. You can go there to find our podcasts and maybe other things like goofy pictures of us. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at saverpod. Thank you to all of our guests today and to Landis Taylor and the whole team over at ExploreAsheville.com for helping us find them. And also to our co-executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis, for helping us find them. Thanks, as always, to super producer Dylan for making our jobs easy and our other co-executive producer here at Stuff Media, Julie Douglas, for all of her good advice. Thank you to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way.
and then we sang Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. We sang Dead or Alive. Mm-hmm. And then we sang Paramore. And Annie, I am very mad at you because I haven't been able to stop listening to Paramore for like a <laughs> week now. And I haven't listened to Paramore in like 10 years. And I thought that that was long gone. <laughs> <laughs> was his misery business? Was it my idea? It was your idea. I know it's my little brother's favorite song. Oh well, I, I think that I think that one of you suggested a different song by Paramore. I if, I'm all knows. in on misery business or ain't it fun. So it was probably I was like probably like ain't it fun. You're like misery business. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Misery business is my choice of Paramore songs if I'm going to karaoke. So I, I I don't want if if that's how you remember it happening. I'm not going to argue with you, but. I think it was a group decision. Oh, yeah. And we really gave it our all. That's the thing. <laughs> and our <laughs> all was terrible. <laughs> but if you're wondering about this crew, when we karaoke, we do karaoke hard. We do it. <laughs> yes. That's the only way to karaoke. We put Absolutely. in our heart and soul. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.